Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everyone is here for another Christmas show. Uh, We had a uh, very uplifting discussion with Gary Wayne last week, and that show uh, fortunately has not been banned yet, Um, but he will be back with Barbara on the 18th. Tonight we'll be examining more mysteries from the Holy Land in Middle East with intriguing and ancient text scholar Ken Godsword. Uh, today or tonight is another career retrospective show of like four or five of Ken's uh, books. Uh, his latest book is entitled The Atrahasis Epic, A Sumerian Tale of Irrigation Floods and the Creation of Man. Um, We'll get into his uh, magic in the Bible uh, before Roswell, uh, the Fermi Paradox, and he has a... uh, translation of the scriptures uh, going on to, you know, we'll hear a little bit. Um, you know, we have a um, meteor shower tonight, or it could be uh, Rudolph doing some practicing, but um, uh, mm-hmm. that's, uh, Barbara said that should be start, uh, like in uh, I call it like full action uh about the time the show ends. So uh, uh, check that out in a couple hours. Okay. Hi, Ken. How are you? Hey, Mark. Uh, glad to be here. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Uh, 
glad you are here. I I think what you are doing uh, is it fits into the season. Um, and I think we need to understand our prehistory. And I, uh, as you know, we go from you know from book to book. I, you know, really look forward to hearing about these uh, tablets, uh, the, the thought process of the authors, what uh, what people were thinking at that time. I, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, people, yeah, people are in the, the listeners are going to find out a lot of these authors um, were uh, almost like Arthur C. Clarke, uh, you know, r- really way ahead of their time in like sci-fi writing. So, um, and you're you're referring. To the authors of the of the ancient um, Babylonian Babylonian tablets and uh, also mm-hmm. the ancient Hebrew texts as well. Right. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, um, uh, you know, maybe maybe we ought to with a little bit of uh, background on the Atra. Hasis um, ta- tablet, and then the and and Numish. Yeah, the Enuma Elish. Yeah, yeah so, that's it. I'm sorry. Sure. So I'll, I'll give you um, a little bit of a synopsis there. So um, basically, um, you know, Sumer, or as it later became known as Sumeria. Um, was an ancient society that eventually um, turned into uh, like the Akkadian society. And then after that, it was the Babylonian society. And after that, it was the Persian uh, Empire. And then now it's the area of Iraq um, and probably some of the other countries around there, like uh, Iran and um possibly even up into Turkey and Armenia and uh, Samaria, uh, as well as um, Syria. So so basically the Middle East um, around the Persian Gulf. And there have been uh, people living in in that area uh, for thousands of years and um, many times have gotten up to... um, reasonably reasonable levels of, of technology or civilization as we would more more likely call it. Um, and you know the, the conventional wisdom tells us that uh, the that, that Sumer, the society the original society there, um, became civilized around four thousand BC, so that's around six thousand years ago. Um, maybe a little bit earlier, but um, you know, it, we're, we're starting to uh, question some of the established timelines 
more recently because of the discovery of uh, places like Gobekli Tepe uh, in up in Anatolia, um, as well as it's not the only one. There's a there's actually a whole bunch of sites in that area, um, Katal Hayak and and others. Um, some only a few of which have started to become excavated, um, but there has been, um, you know, about a hundred years ago, there was ex- excavation was happening in uh-huh. in Iraq and that area, as well as Egypt, of course. Like we all we all know about uh, the discovery of King Tut's tomb and all that stuff, which was very very highly publicized. Um, the stuff in Iraq got a lot less publicity, um, but was actually um, came out to be just as important because uh, a couple of those discoveries were um, a, a, a massive, essentially a massive library um, that was sort of housed in uh, two two principal sites, but probably other sites as well. Um, one was like a royal uh, palace of King, I believe it was King Sennacherib, and um, and then there was like a, what may have been actually a literally a civic public public library. Um, like we're a little bit speculating here, uh, but it seems like just due to due to the massive collections of tablets that were there. Um, that were uncovered back in the 1800s and essentially thrown into a dump truck and 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 put in a shipping container and shipped off to London. Yeah. Okay. And and there was no cataloging. Um, Everything was just literally just thrown into a giant pile. So uh, a huge mess. And then it took, well, who knows where it, it, landed up exactly and how long it sat there but eventually um some people at the london museum realized hey maybe there's something important here and so they started trying to unravel the spaghetti um so now we have uh scholars who um basically started a whole uh, a whole new science um of uh, what what they would be become known as um, well, I guess Sumeriology. I can't remember if there's another name for it. It's probably a better word for it. Uh, but basically, you get the um, point across. Yeah. So you know, Egyptology was was really catching on, and then these guys were like, "Oh, actually, we have a whole bunch of old stuff in our basement. Why don't we go look at it? Maybe there's cool stuff in it." So they started to try to decipher this writing, and they basically discovered a cuneiform writing, uh, but nobody knew how to read it. Um, and so I'll, I'll just kind of skip ahead. Eventually, they figured out uh, how to decipher this writing, and uh, and they were able to to start uh, translating these tablets. Now, tons of these tablets were literally just like paperwork. Um, there was like tax files and like, this is like, keep in mind, this is 6,000 year old documents, um, but like tax files, shopping lists, there was a complaint to a copper salesman, um, which is making the rounds on, um, on Facebook now as a, it's turned into a whole set of memes 
uh, where uh, where people are complaining about the co- quality of their copper. It's kind of hilarious. Um, but uh, like seriously, just like thousands and thousands of these clay tablets, um, some of which turned out to contain uh, what appeared to be stories. And so they have been, of course, categorized as mythology. Um, now, there's a little bit of problems with the with the term mythology because it automatically sort of assumes that it's not real, and these are stories about uh, about mythical beings who are not real, um, and they they usually end up being called gods, although that word was not in the vocabulary when they were written, um, and. I, I'm starting to make the case that that the concept of gods was not in the in the vocabulary and in fact is not at all backed up in the stories themselves. Um, so that's one of the sort of points that I'm that I'm making in the Adra, in my um, my Atrahasis book, uh, which is a commentary uh, based on. Um, prior English translations that I came across. Um, and the Atrahasis book is basically a sequel to the Enuma Elish, uh, which is another one of these tablets. So, so basically there's these really ancient tablets and they have stories on them, and then we're trying to assemble them in a way that makes sense. Um, there's a whole bunch of other ones uh, which are stories such as Gilgamesh, which is some of our listeners I'm sure have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so some of these stories seem to overlap. Um, I, I, I was just, I, I was just going to say that like Anki. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. There's a few uh, durs that. Yeah. So if anybody's read any Zechariah Sitchin, uh, you'll be familiar with a lot of the characters um, Sitchin uh, tell, attempts to tell the, these stories, um, but uh, the the issue that I have with the way Sitchin does it is that he he will make a claim and he'll say basically this is what the stories say, and he'll say that, you know whatever point he's trying to make, um, but he doesn't ever tell us which tablet or which uh, which myth or which story he's taking this uh, information from, so it's basically impossible to fact check uh, anything that Sitchin says. Um, So kind of that's sort of how I got into this was that um, I was reading Sitchin and I was like, "Uh, yeah, this kind of sounds um, feasible, uh, but I kind of want to know, like, where is he getting this from? And so I I stumbled across um, some resources online where you can actually read some of these uh, these ancient um, texts and and the, well translated into English, of course. Um, and uh, so I sort of had to kind of well, there there's like a lot of these. Obviously, with the thousands of tablets that were discovered, a lot of stories turned up. Um, and so basically, what I tried to do was go to the store. I tried to track. Um, basically narrow it down to the stories that seemed to be uh, dealing with origin, uh, so human origins and things like that. 
And so, um, so I, I didn't really get into Gilgamesh that much because it seems to happen a little bit later, even though you, it could be argued that Gilgamesh is a, is a human origin story. Um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, but so far I haven't written a book about Gilgamesh. Um, and there's also other versions of the, the material that I'm covering um, that, that do seem to be telling the same story, but in a little bit different way. And actually part of that uh, shows up in Gilgamesh as well, uh, because you have uh, references to the flood or at least to um, some of the characters uh, from the flood story. So this is where Atrahasis comes in, is it's uh, essentially a flood story, which sort of in some ways parallels the Noah's Ark story from the Bible, mm-hmm. um, but is actually substantially different in a few regards. Um, but the Atrahasis epic is not um, not really about the flood. The flood is just one of the things that happens in the story. Uh, the the flood or sorry the story itself um, is really about uh, how who are we and how did we come to be and so it's it begins in the Enuma Elish uh, telling stories about the people who um, according to the story uh, these other people who created humans and uh, these guys are known as the Anunnaki nowadays. Um, they weren't necessarily called the Anunnaki in the story themselves. Uh, they, well, they sort of were. They usually are referred to as the sons of An or the sons of Anu. Um, and so most, um, most uh, mythologists will tell you Anu is the sun god. But that's not really true at all um, because in the stories, they do not um, – they don't refer to Anu as a god. You don't see Anu being worshipped, uh, or uh, Anu is not a supreme being, uh, not a all-powerful being, and is not a creator, a creator god in any way. Um, however, it does refer to Anu uh, or An coming down from the sky and going up into the sky. Uh-huh. So sounds more like uh, Anu might be a spaceman or an extraterrestrial who has come, has visited Earth. And he, he also has children, which we're not entirely sure if we should take literally as they are like his uh, genetic children or if they're uh, simply his, his staff or like his, his employees yeah, or something like that. Um, but, uh, when we begin, when we follow the story along, some of those children, um, uh, namely Enki and Lil and, and a few others, um, are actually, we actually see through the narrative that they actually do have children. Um, but it is a little bit strange because even here, they don't necessarily seem to be reproducing naturally. Um, and there's uh, a fair bit of evidence in the text itself in the Enuma Elish um, that it's rather than, 
simple reproduction, it sounds more like some kind of uh, biotechnology that they're mm-hmm. that they're engaging in. Oh, like, yeah, you really develop that in you know, like uh, almost like test tube babies and that kind mm-hmm. of uh, you know genetic engineering in uh, part two. Yeah, for sure. So that does come up in uh, the Enuma Elish, the, the part one of the story, um, where in that story, Enki creates, and it sounds like it's a bioengineering thing, he creates uh, another guy named Marduk, um, who is also a, a kind of a big name in the mythologies because he is uh, generally thought of as like a very powerful god. Um, but he was just, um, he, he was a, a character that was created by uh, Anki. Then later on in the Enuma Elish, or sorry, in the Atrahasis epic, um, Anki oversees uh, his staff. He now has like um, uh, basically um, a chief lab officer, and she's got uh, seven um, other, assistants. Yeah, seven assistants, and they're called the womb goddesses. Um, but again, the word goddess is an English word that we've put on there. So don't don't take that like to mean that, oh, it's definitely a goddess. That they're immortal or anything like that. It, there's none of that is implied uh, in the actual text. But what we do see is that we have basically a tech, a technology company uh, run by Anki that um, is now creating uh, uh, this new version of people in their lab. And they go through a lot of technical details in terms of explaining how this all works. Mm -hmm. Um, And it definitely involves DNA. Uh, At one point, they, um, well, there's two two separate uh, kind of methods for the DNA extraction. One is that they actually have to um, kill one of the, one of their own. So, Let's call them gods for a second. Uh, one of the gods is is literally like um, sacrifice to a sacrificed. god. Well, so it's again we have this religious connotation there that is not in the story. Um, but basically, what they do is they draw straws. They're like, well, we need some, uh, we we need um, body and we need flesh and blood to make this new thing we're going to do. Um, who wants to volunteer? And so basically they draw straws and this one guy loses. And so he has to die, but it's not because they're trying to like satisfy the whims of some supernatural being. It's because they literally need his DNA um, and probably his, uh, his organs or his stem cells. Again, there's a little bit of conjecture conjecture here because um, like they're not using the same language that we're using. And also, we have to keep in mind that over the last hundred years, since people have been translating this language, um, they they always were working under the assumption that these people didn't know anything. They were uh, they were rubes. They were superstitious. They believed in um, these spiritual beings. None of that is true, um, and in fact, they were uh, highly advanced and technologically savvy. Uh, but of course, those assumptions um, really interfered with uh, with having a good translation, uh, because honestly, the guys who were making these translations 
didn't know any of this stuff. And so how can they, how can they uh, translate it into uh, concepts that didn't exist 100 years ago that we're only now catching up on? So, so basically, I, I guess where I'm getting at is that the ancient um, Akkadians and, and Sumerian cultures were a, had about the same level of technology advancement that we currently have uh, right now. In fact, it seems like it was a little bit beyond where we're at now. Um, and so the, the people who uh, initially translated the Sumerian uh, cuneiform tablets had no comprehension of the, of the concepts that were being talked about in the stories. So they had to make up some stuff, uh, which give it a, gave the text a very sort of a falsely religious flair that doesn't, really shouldn't be there. And when you were talking about the you know, creation of humans and you know, understanding of DNA from um, well, like six thousand years ago, yeah. the the uh, like one one of the. Um, descriptions of uh, you know, uh, making a lab-produced uh, bio-being, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it requires, uh, you know, people to spit on clay. So yeah, there we right. have, you know, like, you know, the DNA mouth swabs that are done today, you know, kind of mixed in with all these uh, ancient cultures uh, saying that, you know, uh, the first person was molded by the creator, you know, from clay. So, uh, there's... Yeah, exactly. So, but here's the thing. The the clay thing is not not really wrong either, because in the Atrahasis description, um, they they do use uh, this one sacrificed uh, person Whose, whose body they somehow use uh, in this experiment. They also get everyone else, so the rest of the gods, I'm using my air quotes here, uh, the gods have to come through, and each of them is to spit into this mix. Um, so we have the original DNA material. Now we're adding DNA from the whole population, which gives you a really good gene pool to work with here. Um, and also they are talking about a clay, um, basically a clay, they call it a clay brick. Uh, but a, of course, we're not sure how, um, how much weight to put on that translation because that was translated by people 100 years ago who don't know what we know now and who don't know what the Sumerians knew 6,000 6, or more years ago. Um, and so when they say clay brick, we don't really know what that means, um, but there was some kind of um, a, a matrix, let's just say, uh, whereas which would possibly um, could have played the, played the role of the um, substrate that which would be similar to how if you've ever seen 
um, how they do uh, lab tests at the hospital or, or you know, CSI or any of that stuff. Uh, they, they use what is, they usually use like a Petri dish, um, which is basically uh, like a, a little a gel substrates. And then mm-hmm. that's what they grow the, the um, uh, whatever Plate they're trying, form. yeah, whatever they're trying to grow. Uh, it becomes the food for them, as well as providing um, a place, uh, a safe place for for it to grow. So it's it's quite probable that the clay uh, was something to that effect. Um, and then, hmm. but we do know that the clay itself was not sufficient material uh, to create the being, because otherwise they wouldn't have had to kill this other guy. Um, so it's interesting when. It's it you know the more you look at the various components that that were required, they actually make sense from a scientific standpoint. They don't make any sense at all if you think of it uh, from a religious point of view. You why would you why would a god need to kill another god to please some other god who we don't even hear about in the story? And if that was the case, why would they then need uh, what are these bricks for? And why does everybody have to spit on the offering? Like none of it really makes any sense. Um, you can, uh, I mean, I think the whole the, the whole cons- conceptual framework that is religion is based on these kinds of uh, misinterpretations and false assumptions. So we end up um, creating these really convoluted, uh, frameworks in our in our theology and in our religion um, in order to make any of it make any sense. And I, I think it's highly probable that um, uh, that almost all of the the you know doctrinal or or any any kind of that those kind of concepts um, have just been really a way to try to make sense out of a story that was grossly misinterpreted. And and this goes all the way back to uh, the early Greeks who, um, as far as we can tell, were the first people who kind of started philosophizing about the nature of religion. Um, but we really um, have have taken that early work, and, and I'm looking at guys like Aristotle and um, um, some, of the, some of the Christian... Um, Philosophers like um, uh, Michael uh, Carter. <laughs> I'm thinking earlier, like Saint Augustine and and guys like that. So, you know, they were Origin. basically using yeah, Origin, uh, and and these guys were using Greek methodologies um, and uh, trying to interpret things that um, I think have have really just gotten worse and worse. Um, and so, which brings me to my, my new project, which I'll talk about later. Um, but I did want to mention also, uh, like, you know, we said 6,000 years ago, but there's actually um, pretty substantial evidence in the Atrahasis book uh, that 6,000 is, um, is actually maybe about... Um, maybe about half as old as they actually were like there's there's evidence in there around the um the chronology 
of the Persian Gulf. And we have geographic and geological evidence and archaeological evidence that all click together. And basically, uh, we know from a scientific standpoint, um, without without any kind of, um, you know, looking at any kind of legends or myths or anything, from from a purely geolog geological, geographical, and archaeological perspective, we now know that the Persian Gulf was not, in fact, full of water uh, until fairly recently. So, in ancient times, that was a dry riverbed. Um, of course, the Tigris and the Euphrates River run through there, um, and at, you know, up until um, well, let, let's just say during the last ice age, let's start there. Um, and, and again, this is a gross over, a gross, um, oversimplification because literally we are still in the ice age. Uh, so I always like to qualify this as when I say in the last ice age, I know I'm wrong, uh, because we're still in it. Um, but I guess what I really mean is, when the, when the current ice age was in a more highly glaciated state um, from about 100,000 years ago to almost um, 12 to 10,000 years ago uh, is when it kind of started melting pretty fast. Um, and up until that point, and now this coincides with the Younger Dryas period that you hear Graham Hancock talking about. And... Um, it's a known fact. At, at that time, um, the ocean level rose, and it did so in a very rapid way because there was uh, there was substantial climate change. Um, there may or may not have been a, a meteor or a comet. Uh, it could have just been um, basically natural cycles of the way that weather works, um, because it can it can set off. Uh, very imbalanced uh, patterns, which which cause uh, dramatic shifts in a in a fairly rapid way. Um, but no matter what the cause was, we do know that this did happen, and we know that through uh, a lot of different scientific um, explorations of of data, from uh, mostly from geological uh, surveys and um, like basically the way that the 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 soil is layered and things like that, um, but also with ice cores. And so there's all these different, um, you know, scientific investigation that has all led us to the knowledge that, oh, yeah, well, ab about about 10 or 12,000 years ago, the, the ocean level rose up quite a lot uh, by about 400 feet. Now, keep in mind, the Persian Gulf is only about 100 feet deep. So if you take away 400 feet of water, which is essentially going backwards in time, you could imagine the, just watching the water levels drop. So up until around 10,000 years ago, though the ocean was uh, way down in um, what is now the, uh, the Gulf of Oman, and uh, there was no Persian Gulf. There was there was just a valley and some rivers coming down. And um, 
we know that the the point at which the water rose up high enough to begin inundating what is now the Persian Gulf was around 8,000 years ago. So if if we know that the Sumerian and Akkadian and Babylonian societies uh, were centered around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and we definitely do know that, um, then we kind of have to also take into account this, the, the simple fact that civilizations are always centered around a river and not just anywhere on the river, but at the mouth of the river. So if these guys were there uh, in that area 10,000 years ago, they were not uh, concentrated where they are now. They were way down, way down the valley to the old mouth of the river where the old seacoast used to be at what is now the Straits of Hormuz. Um, So if you were to go diving and with a bunch of uh, underwater archaeological gear in the Straits of Hormuz, you're going to find a lot of uh, cool stuff because that's going to be stuff that's older than any of the other uh, Sumerian um, artifacts that we've found uh, because it's going to be around 8,000 years old or older. So it's not going to be, it's not going to be any newer than 8,000 years because at, at that point um, that was when they got flooded out. And so they all, they had to move up the valley or up the, up the sides of the valley or, and the mouth of the river uh, moved up to, actually to pass to where it is now uh, because when when the ocean levels rose they actually rose uh, a little bit higher it's not so much that the ocean level was higher but um, it went farther up the valley uh, and then over the next 2000 or or so years after that uh, the mouth was pushed back down the valley due to sedimentation and silt buildup so I, I was trying to, yeah. uh, before we get into all the geology, so at, where do we make the leap from the story of these genetically engineered uh, people and this, you know, the structures, settlements uh, near the mouth of this? Straits of Hormuz. Yeah. Well, this is the thing is these two stories are intertwined. So the um in the uh in in the Atrahasis story, you have um the story opens with uh the these these Anunnaki, let's just call them that. Um and uh essentially um they're introduced and then you have a second set of characters that are introduced, um, and they are the Igigi. Now, the Igigi are uh, apparently working for the Anunnaki, um, and they uh, the the story says that they that this carried on for 3,600 years. So, the timeline is baked right into the narrative. Um, after the Anunnaki uh, caught, um, 
forced the Igigi to do this work for them for 3,600 years, they they rebelled. And um, they said, hey, we don't want to do this work anymore. And this is interesting because the work that they were having to do uh, was apparently, now I'm, I will I explain this in the book as to how I get to this con- conclusion, um, but uh, essentially it seems like they were actually doing uh, canal building and dredging of the rivers um, in order, as well as irrigation, in order to, uh, to grow crops on, on either side of the river. Um, they did this for 3,600 years. So that's almost 4,000 years, okay? Right. And it, it states uh, very clearly in the, narr- in the narrative that they, uh, they dug and dug and they took the dirt and they piled up this dirt, which is a really weird thing to say. Uh, like, why is that an important detail for this story? And we'll see why in a minute. So just stick a pin in that. But remember, 4,000 years of dirt, okay? It's a lot of dirt. Mm-hmm. Now, the um, so a- after 4,000 years, the Igigi go, hey, wait, this is no not cool. We don't want to do this anymore. You guys have to come up with a better plan. We're going on strike. So at this point, Enki... Uh, and his his um, lab uh, tech his lab tech uh, whose name is Nintu um, the two of them are working and and they have their seven assistants and they create uh, another set of people that are going to do the work so you have the Anunnaki you have the Igigi who are doing the work for the Anunnaki and now you have this new set called the Lulu. And uh, at this point, the, the Lulu are now going to take over doing this work. This is where you get the story with the, with the sacrifice of the um, – it's not clear whether this guy was an Igigi or an Anunnaki. Um, but then all of, the, all of these other Igigi who were there uh, are all spitting. So what, it may well be a conmixture – of Anunnaki and Igigi DNA. That's sort of my take on it. Um, that's not 100% clear, uh, but it's it's uh, it's definitely a combination of a bunch of guys' DNA. And the result from that is this Lulu. Uh, then it goes on to tell that the Lulu uh, worked on this, started working on, the da- on this dam, and it says they worked for 600 years, and then there was a drought. Oh. Then they worked for 600 years, and there was um, a famine. Then they worked for 600 years, and there was a flood. So the flood is just part of this same narrative. Now, here's where things get very strange. Well, actually, I should also mention, they also were building ships at this time. They they already had um, navigation. So this is... By the by, the normal dating uh, of these societies, this is six thousand years ago. Supposedly, nobody was supposed to know how to build a ship back then. Uh, but in the story, we see that they're actually using ships, and then they actually uh, straight up say that um, uh, Atrahasis, one of these characters, 
builds a ship and and they're actually sending um, messages down the river to where Anki is. So here's another important part. So Anki is down the river. So that indicates to me Anki is down the river from the area where all these guys are working. Uh, the area where all these guys were working was to build um, to build canals or to maintain the canals that were there on the floodplain or basically in the valley. So these guys are all working in the valley and they're sending messages downstream by boat uh, to, to inform Anki of what, what's happening, which means that Anki is at the mouth of the river. Um, now, here's another interesting, here's where the things start to converge and nobody's really, I don't think, noticed this before. Um, so this is kind of why my book is very unique in this way. And so what happens is the uh, the guys who are dredging the river are most likely putting the dirt onto these dredges. I mean, it doesn't really say that, but let's think about this. If you have the ability to have a barge, and barges are cheap, they're really easy to make, especially if, you've, uh, if you're living right beside a river and you've got reeds growing everywhere, you can easily build a barge out of reeds. So the easiest way to get rid of the dirt that you're dredging is to put it on a barge made out of reeds and just let go of it. It's going to disappear off into the sunset down the river. The only other way to get rid of it is to put it in a basket, load it up on your back, or maybe you have a donkey, and take it away somewhere, which is going to take you hours, right? Why would you do that? No, you're going to scoop it into the um, scoop it into your barge, and bye-bye, there it goes. It's all automatic. So when it gets down to the mouth of the river, who's down there? Well, we know that Anki's down there. So, and this is a little bit of conjecture here, but I'm saying that Anki had a crew stationed with him at the mouth of the river, and they would take the dirt and they would then pile it up. The story already told us earlier that they were piling up the dirt for 4,000 years. The logical place for this to be happening is at the mouth of the river. Well, if you start piling dirt at, around the mouth of a river, you're going to end up with a dam. Um, now, here's another interesting fact, because in the story, uh, Enki, one of the titles of, of Enki is that uh, he has um, a, a, a strange thing that nobody really knows what it is and might also be a little bit mistranslated. Um, but what we see that Enki is in charge of is called the bolt which bars the sea. Doesn't that sound like a dam to you? It does. Yeah. So he's barring the sea. A bolt. Now, keep in mind, I mean, bolt is a kind of a funny word, but what is what is the thing called? A bolt is what we put on our door uh, to keep it closed. Right. Uh, whether it's a deadbolt or whether it's one of those old-fashioned barn doors where you have um, a, a stick going across the the, the whole doorway that's called a bolt. Mm -hmm. So, 
so literally, if we have a bolt that bars the C, it's a dam. So we already have here, Enki is uh, creating a dam um, across the entrance to the Persian Gulf, or to what would, what would later become the Persian Gulf. Um, and so there's a few details that are really not clear, like as to what, if he did uh, dam off that hole, uh, like straight across, um, what happens to the, the water that's coming down from the river? It's got to go somewhere. A uh, river can't go over a dam. So they might have had um, some system of pumps or something like that, which mm-hmm. seems a little bit unlikely due to the size of the Tigris and the Euphrates. These are substantial rivers. However, since there was a lot of irrigation going on, and we know that they've been working on these uh, these canals for 4,000 years, um, it's quite possible, and, and we see this happening now in, in modern um, farming societies, it's quite possible. California is a great example, um, as is the, uh, the uh, what's that, the Colorado River, uh, that because of the diversion of the water into irrigation, uh, the river may be uh, like basically trickle, like just kind of taken down to a trickle, right? So it's actually not impossible uh, for the even the Tigris to have become uh, a, a small river by the time it got all the way down through what is now the, the Persian Gulf. And they could have probably easily pumped it uh, with a windmill or some, some other form of uh, uh, early civilization pump. We know that the Egyptians had uh, had similar pumps. So... So here's the very interesting part to me is that if we know that that dam was there and we know that there was a a flood of the Persian Gulf around 8,000 years ago, um, we also have um, archaeological evidence all around the Persian Gulf that basically shows that... um, in, in the places that are now coastal regions, uh, nobody used to live there prior to 8,000 years ago. So it's like it was always nobody was there because they were down farther in the valley, down by the river. But uh-huh. suddenly 8,000 years ago, um, people had to move up to, the, to these what is now the coastline. So it seems like it was a sudden shift into where people had to move. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Um, which now, if you have a dam and then you have a sudden shift in the geography upstream from the dam, the uh, the obvious, or sorry, uh, well, it's upstream from the dam, but now look at it from the ocean's perspective, right? If there's a dam and the ocean level is rising, it's going to rise up the backside of the dam. So when, if there's going to be a, a t- like tons and tons, literally like megatons of pressure uh, coming against that dam from the ocean, um, and these guys are working for, uh, for 4,000 years to keep maintaining this dam because the waves are always eroding it. Um, and so 
eventually uh, the dam gives way and suddenly there's this catastrophic flood. Um, and that, that's what forces everybody up, uh, up higher up, elevations, higher up to the elevations mm-hmm. and also kills most of the people. Um, but now again, this is where the, the flood story in the Atrahasis epic is a little bit different because it, whereas in the Bible, it's only Noah and his immediate family that survive in the Atrahasis epic, actually a whole bunch of people survive. It, it's very clear that lot, most people are wiped out, um, but there's still, uh, we don't really know how many, but um, it seems like hundreds. And the reason I say that is because the survivors um, are, are, are actually, the, the, uh, the Anunnaki are kind of mad that so many, so many people survived because by now they were getting uh, a bit annoyed with these people. And so um, they basically, the Anunnaki now have a big meeting and they're like, well, okay, we were hoping that that would wipe these guys out, but look, there's still a bunch of them here. What are we going to do with them? I say we kill them all now. And they, they, so they debated back and forth. And eventually uh, what they decided was we're going to divide them into three different groups and we're going to put um, various uh, forms of, uh, well, you could say punishment. It's not really punishment, but um, basically they, they put some limitations on to the survivors, one of which was to limit their rate of reproduction, which is weird. Um, I don't, it doesn't tell us how they did it. Uh, so we don't know if it was something uh, akin to what the Chinese government is doing now or if it was some kind of um, like physical, uh, biological means. Um, And if they had the means to create these people in the first place, uh, it certainly would not be out of reach for them to manipulate their DNA in some way as to limit their reproductive rates. Um, So very odd. Uh, so, So that's a a bit different from the the Bible story, but it's actually kind of similar because in both stories you have these gods um, getting mad and kind of saying, well, we don't really want these people here anymore. Um, Now, but again, let's go back to the timeline for a sec because I never finished my my thought process there. If if the dam uh, broke 8,000 years ago, which seems pretty uh, like pretty substantially evidence based. Um, now let's take in, take into account the rest of the story. So this story told us about this event, which we know historically happened, uh, and we know that it happened eight thousand years ago. Embedded in this same story, we have a timeline because it already told us. Uh, 4,000 years of digging uh, by the Igigi, and then 600 and 600 and 600. So that's uh, 1,800, so almost 2,000. So we're getting, combine those two eras, and we're up at almost 6,000 and almost uh, another 2,000. That's rounding. If If you don't round it, you come up with 
5,400. So we're talking about 5,400 years uh, that we have to put in before the 8,000 year, years before now. So 8,000 plus 5,400 takes us to 13,400 years ago, uh, which is a long time ago um, and is about a thousand years before Gobekli Tepe. So the traditional dating of the Sumerian um, civilization is that it started around 4,000, well, around 6,000 years ago. Uh, and I'm saying that it's more than doubled that because they're the ones who are telling us the story and they're telling it from the beginning of the story, which they're stating very explicitly was 13,400 years ago. Okay, so it, the the story is set around the end of the Ice Age. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Yeah, a little after you know when Doctor Shock talks about uh, the Sphinx sat in a uh, river at at one time. Yeah. Uh, so so you know we do see uh, uh, the the Middle East. With you know, you know, let's just say the Sphinx and you know the uh, tablets that uh, you're talking about, uh, they are documenting changes in uh, geology, you know, like uh, r- rivers jumping course. Uh, their uh, artifacts are, are revealing much older. Um, civilizations. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, me. the more we dig, we're now finding more and more evidence that is corroborating that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Gobekli Tepe is not the oldest site in Anatolia. Um, and again, I don't have, I don't have absolute dates for, for the other sites. Um, but we do know that uh, Gobekli Tepe was very solidly dated. I believe it was, I might be getting this a little bit wrong. I think it was 12,800 years ago. It was a 12 something for sure. Um, and now, now new, new evidence is, um, is stating that Catalhoyuk uh, and um, uh, I can't remember how to how to pronounce some of the other sites, um, but some of these other sites are even older than Gobekli Tepe. It, it, there's an, it, it, isn't there another uh, te, like uh, starts with a K Tepe? Yeah. Oh yeah. Karan Karan Tepe. I think. I I I I think you're much closer. Uh, to pronouncing it than I am, but it, it, you know there there is more in Anatolia Absolutely. that is older. There's a whole bunch of stuff up there, and then you also got to consider the um, 
these underground cities that are in that exact same area. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have Darren Kuyu, uh, which is actually only one um, of a huge network that runs um, several hundred miles. I believe it runs underground all the way over to uh, to the western tip of uh, um, of Turkey. So basically uh, to uh, Istanbul, and so that whole area um, has interconnected underground cities, and just one of them, though the one that's been excavated the most so far. Um, uh, was able to to um, sustain, I believe they said 6,000, or was it 60,000? Might have actually been 60,000 uh, inhabitants mm-hmm. could live in this underground city. Um, and that's just one of hundreds of these cities that, uh, that underlie this area. Nobody has a clue who built them or how long ago. I speculate, and this is pure speculation, mind you, uh, but I think it is quite feasible and evidence-based, even though there's no real solid evidence. Um, But in terms of, um, uh, you know, circumstantial evidence, which which I think shouldn't be ruled out, um, if we're... If if these other above-ground sites are pointing to the fact that there were intelligent people in that area 13 uh, and 14,000 years ago, which is well into the ice age, then to me, it makes sense that uh, if people were living there during a period where the entire continent was, was covered with ice. Uh, now I do need to check as to exactly what the extent of the ice in in that specifically around Turkey, I'm not, I don't know exactly where the ice came down to, but it would make sense to me that if the people in that area uh, were aware that the, you know, that huge swaths of ice uh, were covering the ground, um, why wouldn't you build underground cities? In fact, that's the only reason I can think of to bother going to the, all the effort of digging through rock uh, when you can easily build a city above the ground. Um, it's a lot more work to uh, to build an underground city. Um, so the only reason I can think of is that it's too cold outside or, you know, the ground is covered with ice and there's literally no place to build. So I speculate that uh, that these underground cities in Turkey are were built uh, during the ice age or possibly even prior to the ice age which i realize is a bit outlandish because that puts it pushes it back uh, at least another hundred thousand years but if you look at the legends so Uh this is this is again it ties in a little bit with the uh with both the Atrahasis and the biblical accounts, whereas where you have this God uh, person who is essentially coming from the sky and warning the people, hey, uh, your house is going to get destroyed. 
you need to do something. You need to get into the arc, right? So typically we understand that as being a floating boat um, and a flood. But what if the arc is not necessarily a floating boat? Because there's there's no indication etymologically or uh, or anything like that 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 it's a boat. It just says get into this thing. Like it uses usually uses a word that that is not accounted for in any other place because it's a unique um, situation. So uh, so if the god comes down and says, "Hey guys, you're uh, you're gonna get destroyed and uh, there's." It's, you're going to be flooded with water. Well, we don't. We what we don't know is if that water is going to be in liquid or or solid form. Um, so, if you're if you're standing in the path of a oncoming um, glacier, uh, it is you are going to get wiped out by water. It just happens to be in solid form, and also. The interesting part about that is if it is a glacier and it's coming towards you, you actually have time to do something about it. So it does make sense for that that uh, God to, to warn the people, hey, guys, look, this is coming. Uh, they probably wouldn't have understood it without him telling them that. So this all kind of makes sense. And he's like, look, guys, that glacier, you can't tell from here, but I know that it's coming towards you. And in about two years, it's going to destroy your village. So go underground. Well, you know, you do have um, references to the people uh, wanting to control the weather. Oh, yeah? Where's that? uh, Page 69 of the Atrahasis. Okay. Uh, I forgot about that part. So they actually wanted to control the weather. Hey, well, that's you wrote, uh, See, I told you this would happen. <laughs> the Anunnaki could but, control or at least influence the abundance or lack of precipitation. This power was under direct control of King Anu. No wonder he later oh, yeah. became known as the Sky God. Right, right, right. So... Yeah, so I don't know exactly how to interpret that. I mean, one way could be that he, being the being the sky god, or being Anu, who came from the sky, he, uh, in most of the, mo- during most of this narrative, he's not around because he's gone back up to the sky. So to me, um, if you're going to take an ancient aliens uh, interpretation, um, there, to me, that kind of makes a lot of sense with the narrative because. He's now in orbit or able to uh, fly through the atmosphere. We already know that UFOs um, cause atmospheric atmospheric events, um, and we talked about that in our um, uh, before Roswell book, and um, mm-hmm. and it's it's been uh, fairly well documented in other in other. UFOlogy uh, studies where there's this thing where um, it all it's I can't remember what they call it in in um, like uh, weather what's a, what's the technical term for a weatherman again Cosmo, cosmo cosmology Meteorologist. meteorology yeah 
Um, so they have a technical term for it. Um, and basically what happens is if you have an overcast sky, so it's a cloudy day, uh, what, sometimes there's this phenomenon where there will suddenly be uh, like a round, a perfectly round in, some, in many cases, uh, like a hole in the clouds. And so it's not 100% clear how this happens. And of, of course, the meteorological explanation has uh, something to do with probably a high pressure area or something like that. Um, and, and sudden um, uh, condensation. So, I mean, it's, it's totally possible that, that it's a 100% uh, totally a natural phenomenon. Um, but it also seems to happen sometimes um, concurrent with a UFO sighting, uh, which, again, is not super surprising because when you see an airplane uh, traveling through the sky and the way that the atmosphere interacts with, the, with an airplane, you often see condensation being formed, and that's what we know as vapor trails. Uh, unless, of course, you are into the whole uh, chemtrails <laughs> um, thing, which, which you know, uh, I think that um, that it from a from a purely atmospheric um, point of view, it makes sense that if there's a cold airplane flying through and suddenly hits a pocket of um, of moisture in the air, that that cold is going to cause that moisture to condense and form a cloud. This is exactly the same thing that happens when you put too many ice cubes in your in your lemonade. Uh, what happens? Your glass is wet on the outside. That's not because somehow the ice has um, has gone through the glass or anything like that. It's because the glass has suddenly become cold, and so the air around the outside of the glass um, gives off the uh, the um, moisture that's that's already in the air, even on a hot day, there's moisture uh, in the air, and that the that moisture condenses onto on the cold glass. If you were to pull the glass away really fast, the water would stay there, right? So it's exactly the same thing as what's happening um, with these vapor trails, and quite possibly what was happening with Anu, um, which is how he could control the weather. Again, we don't know, but it's, it's speculative, but it makes sense uh, with the current science that we know. Okay. Well, it, um, you know, let, let's also get into – go from, you know, the uh, Tigris and Euphrates rivers to um, – you know, the magic show along the banks of the Nile and give yeah. uh, the audience a little uh, flavor of your book, Magic in the Bible. Uh, really like that one as well. Thank you. Um, so when I wrote Magic in the Bible, um, I was still very much embedded in the Christian church, uh, which I have since um, sort of retracted from somewhat. Uh, but the reason I say that is because the framework that I used 
um, in, in, in analyzing the biblical texts um, was coming from a conservative Christian uh, background. And however, I, I could see that um, there were a couple of things that, that uh, didn't make sense to me. So, um, so basically the concept around that book is that uh, there is a, I don't, I don't want to call it a doctrine necessarily, but I, I think it's a pretty common teaching uh, within Christianity that magic is sort of um, equated with like being bad or wrong or evil in, in some way. Um, and so there are, um, there are several, uh, well, if put it this way, if you were to go onto Google and type, um, is magic a sin? You're going to get a whole bunch of pages telling you, yes, magic is a sin and explaining why. And some of the reasons, uh, that they give for why, um, seem to make a lot of sense. Um, However, um, I, I, as I was reading those texts, I was like, uh, yeah, that's true. It does say that. But there's something weird here. Um, so let's go to the book of Exodus. And um, I, I quote the exact uh, chapter and verse in the book, but I, I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um but essentially there's a part, it might actually be in Leviticus now that I think about it, uh, but um, a couple of, it's actually a couple of different places. It pops up um, probably five or six different times where basically Moses tells the Israelites, um, and this is, you know, this is part of the law. So uh, Leviticus is all about the law um, and huge sections of, of Exodus as well are, really about explaining this new law that uh, that Moses is laying out for the people ostensibly that he got from Yahweh. Um, during uh, some of this exposition, Moses says, and, and this actually happens several times, like I said, he says to the people, do not um, practice divination uh, or do not, um, do not seek out mediums do not consult the dead, uh, various things like this. There's a few different twists on it. Um, but basically, uh, it's, it's very clear that is what that verse says. Um, so in, generally, in general, it's thought that, well, if Moses said, do not do this, and this is happening during part of the law, then obviously... Um, the law is all about what is sin and what is not sin. So this is saying don't do it. So therefore magic is a sin. Um, but on the other hand, we see stories where Moses himself appears to be using magic. And like you alluded to already, the um, the scene where it's Moses versus the magicians of Pharaoh and they're doing they're all doing the exact same tricks so uh so here's where we can kind of see what's going on is that Moses 
is um, literally the number one leader in Israel. Like it's Moses and then everybody else is under him. At the, at, at the beginning, it's, it's literally just that. Um, after a couple of months, he decides, oh, well, actually, my brother's going to help me. So he becomes like vice president. And then a little while later, it's like, well, actually, we need other guys to help us. So then they create, uh, they create more structure. So there's more management, basically making middle management, right? And then you start getting priests and Levites and all these other different things. But originally, it's just Moses and the rest of the people. So at this at that at that part, um, the 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 establishment of Moses as the head of Israel was done by Moses performing these magic acts. Now. You're going to say, well, this, hold on, they, they weren't magic acts, they were miracles. Okay, yeah, no, you're right. So let's look at that. So then we examine the difference between a miracle and um, some other, so basically, it's hard to, I can't explain it really off the top of my head, but I do a much better job of explaining it in the book. There's a whole chapter as to what's the difference between uh, miracles and the, this other magic stuff. Um, and so uh, basically what it comes down to is, and, and I, I think I do a pretty good job of showing in the book um, that Moses was actually doing magic. Um, it just so happens that uh, Jehovah taught him how to do a couple of these magic tricks. Um, but after he taught him how to do it, he left, and Moses was doing the tricks on his own. It is, it's never the case that Moses uh, had to call out to God for assistance to do the trick. Uh, he could do it himself. And if you don't believe me, take a look at the, uh, the story of the water from the rock, where Moses strikes, his, uh, strikes the rock with his magic wand, uh, also known as a rod or a walking stick. Um, and uh, God gets mad at him for doing it. So Moses did a thing all by himself, which he then got in trouble from God for doing. So clearly God was not the one doing it. So clearly it was not a miracle. And yet uh, Moses was able to, to accomplish that. So he had the power to do it. And he had the ability to do it, and he did it. He also had the will to do it, and that will was in opposition to the will of Yahweh in that particular instance. So I talk a lot about that kind of stuff. Um, and then I also talk about um, it's not just Moses, because if you take a look at, well, actually, before I move off of Mo Moses, uh, we do know that Moses was born in Egypt and was uh, was. His mother was afraid, so she uh, abandoned him in a basket in the river. And guess who found him? It was uh, the Pharaoh's daughter. So uh, Moses is essentially adopted into the house of Pharaoh, um, where he is educated as he grows up. And what is what does 
Egyptian education consist of? Um, well, they called it mat. We, we now call it math. It's the same word. Um, but to them, mat is, uh, is the rules by which the universe works. And that consists of mathematics as we know it, um, arithmetic and things like that. It consists of accounting and uh, economics, and it consists of religion, and it consists of um, what, whatever the actual conception of, of Egyptian afterlife is, because the Book of the Dead and all that stuff, we don't really understand what they thought. We think we do, but that's a lot of back projection. Um, so all of that, whatever that looked like, that was all part of this, uh, part and parcel of this, uh, all of the stuff they were learning, as well as um, geometry, uh, geography, um, earth sciences, chemistry, uh, what what they uh, what we would later call um, alchemy uh, and religion, as well as politics and philosophy. All of that was wrapped into what they called mat, and um, and oh, but I almost forgot another part, magic. Um, that was part of it too. So you can't separate magic from math, from geometry, from uh, from science. In the Egyptian education system, it was all one thing, and this is why. Um, Moses was able to do these magic, perform these magic acts. He had the Egypt, the Egyptian education training to do it. Yahweh gets involved as well, but that's only after uh, Moses has already uh, completed his education and has ha, and is a grown man who's who's left left his uh, father, the Pharaoh's home. Um, we also see that Pharaoh himself has a whole bunch of other guys um, who are, you know, his, his, whether they're his uh, small council, if you will, kind of like a, like um, Game of Thrones style thing, or, or maybe they were priests or uh, maybe they were the teachers. Uh, we don't know, but these are other academics who lived in Pharaoh's uh, court and, they can do all the same magic acts that uh, Moses can do. Um, so it's clear that they had the exact same training. So these other, these magicians of the Pharaoh is this bunch of guys, but also Moses is included in that group. Moses is a magician of the Pharaoh, except that he just happens to not be working for Pharaoh anymore. You see the exact same situation happening with uh, in the book of Daniel, where the prophet Daniel is a, a magician in the house of um, the court of Babylon. Um, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. And also he actually served, Daniel actually served under three, uh, possibly four uh, different Babylonian kings. He was there for uh, like a long time. Uh, he had a long career uh, in, as the chief magician of Babylon. Um, he was in the role for probably 20 years, um, and uh, at 
again, this is well documented in my book. I give specific dates as to the rise of Daniel through his career in in the in the house of Babylon as the eventually becoming the chief magician. We literally have dates for it. They're they're given in the Bible. Um, and he's also uh, not so. There's there's Moses and uh, Daniel, and there's also a third guy, um, and that is Joseph. Um, so Joseph again is in back in Egypt, and um, when you know he, we all know the story about him rising through the the ranks and becoming the number two man in Egypt, which means that there's the Pharaoh and then there's Joseph. Well, there's the only way that Joseph can get to that position is by getting a proper Egyptian education, uh, which again is exactly the same thing that Moses did. And again, um, Joseph it becomes the the chief, essentially the chief magician of Egypt. So to say that uh, that magic is a sin will would be to uh, to basically wipe out the entire careers of three of the most important people in the Bible. Um, I mean Moses is arguably the second most important person in the Bible. Um, perhaps the third, depending on how you want to roll up your Trinitarian beliefs. Um, but, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, you, know, you know, you make a great point about, uh, so when we get to Jesus walking on water, is that a miracle or magic? So it, well, and you know, that's one of the yeah. really nice things about uh, you know, magic in the Bible is you know there are, you delve into all the different contrasts. You know, uh, you know why is this seen as a miracle? Uh, this uh, this one. Uh, yeah, might have more of uh, you know, be rooted in magic. So uh, you know, you go into uh, you know, uh, was it like uh, blessings and curses, and you know, uh, you have a example of where. Uh, um, God actually curse someone? Yeah. It's weird. So did, now, okay, so now I'm getting mixed up because of my new research um, where in, in, in what I'm finding now, uh, because I'm doing this new translation from the Hebrew, um, it seems at the moment, and I still am in the midst of this, I need to do a lot more digging, but it seems right now that there is actually a single word that means blessing or curse. So, uh, so basically there's a thing happening where there's a, let's call it a a charm maybe because, or a a spell. Let's say it's a spell. We're talking about magic. So, so so basically um, uh, spells are put on people. And these spells can be good or bad. 
right? So, I mean, it's the same thing. You can do with magic. If you have the ability and the power to perform magic, you can do good with it or you can do not so good things with it. Um, And this appears to be what's happening um, in the in the texts uh, where, where it's talking about blessing and cursing, um, I, at this point, I'm thinking that it, from what it looks like to me right now, is that there's a single word that is, um, that is not clear as to whether that's supposed to be ending up to be good or bad. And maybe that's a false dichotomy. Maybe like good and evil, like, you know, is it really this black and white thing all the time? Well, kind of not, uh, because, you know, there's all kinds of other examples that you could dig into in the Bible about um, uh, sometimes you can't tell if the guy is supposed to be a hero or a villain. Um, You know, look at King David. He's a hero except he commits murder and adultery and these things. Well, yeah, well, he, he makes up for it after. Well, okay. But, and then you have Abraham. Well, Abraham's like the, the father of the entire nation. Uh, nobody talks about the fact that Abraham was actually a warlord and, or gang chief. Um, it says very specifically, very explicitly in the book of Genesis it talks about Abraham going to rescue his nephew Lot, and um, he he doesn't want to do it uh, at first, but eventually he decides, okay, let's let's go. And what does he do? He summons his standing army of three hundred men. So essentially, the Bible says that Abraham um, had a band of mercenary men at the ready that he could call at a moment's notice. That's a weird thing to do. Like that's not a normal shepherd thing, right? How did, how did he have that set up? Uh So, yeah. um, uh, You know, if, if you have this, uh, this spell, maybe it's not even clear to the person who's, who's applying the spell uh, it might not be clear what the ultimate effects will be. Um, and honestly, um, maybe it's both. Maybe it's like, okay, this is going to happen, and it's going to be great, but it's also going to have these negative side effects. So I think to think about blessing and cursing in more of a, uh, more of a gray way, I guess. Okay, well, you know, you were just uh, giving one example of uh, uh, David is a hero. Uh, he had uh, you know, his flaws as well. Uh, you know, uh, was he, uh, you know, had, did he have some kind of, uh, curse attached to him <clears throat> you also uh, get into you know the bible also covers uh, inanimate objects that 
are cursed, and you, you do get into uh, you know, you're right. Uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is one such artifact that seems to represent some kind of magical power of its own. The tree embodies a powerful curse that falls on all of mankind. In many ways, the tree itself may be considered some kind of magic item. Yeah. I mean, that one's straight out of Snow White, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, you have this witch that picks the apple and 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 tricks uh, tricks the young girl into eating the apple. It's literally the same story. Um, so in in the fairy tale version, um, we we're explicitly told that it is a poisoned apple, um, and essentially what is a poison but a curse? Because if you eat it, your <laughs> it's things are not going to go too well for you. Right. So it's a physical embodiment of a curse. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I guess you could also kind of think of the Ark of the Covenant in a similar way. Um, mm-hmm. Anybody who touches the thing dies. Like, what's up with that? So is it is it magic or is it some kind of uh, high-tech object? Is there... Is it, does it have electrical power or is it radioactive or something like that? I mean, you know, a lot of people have speculated about that. And I, and I do talk about that as well in my other book, UFOs in the Bible. Um, and it kind of ties back with the whole Enki story where Enki is doing all this high tech stuff um, because he had technology from uh, from 15,000 years ago, now, now that we know the date, um, and, you know, 5,000 years ago, when these stories started getting written down, uh, 10,000 years had already gone pat, gone by. Nobody knew what the heck the technology was because it had, by now, it had just all turned to dust. If you if you look at New York City in ten thousand years, um, you're not going to really see much of anything left, um, aside from rocks and you know statues carved out of rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, even concrete isn't going to last. Steel certainly isn't going to last. Glass isn't going to last. Um, so literally, there is there's nothing on Earth that lasts uh, more than um, usually hundreds, but sometimes a couple thousand years if you're really lucky, aside from rock. And, well, even rock wears down. Um, So this brings us to the Sphinx and the pyramids. You know, those things are, those things could very well be uh, 15,000 years ago, you know, 15,000 years old, um, or even older. Like, we really have no clue how old these things are. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. We have like <clears throat> twenty-five minutes okay. left, unfortunately. But you know, I just uh, did want to throw in a uh, question. I, you know, I'm sure that a lot of the listeners uh, play music or something. You know, they're uh, creative people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when 
uh, you know, you approach, you know, just say, uh, okay, you know, start analyzing. Uh, okay, so w- w- what's uh, is this? Is Jesus being a magician by turning water into wine and you know the fish multiply, or is that a miracle? Okay, so so when you're approaching it, what are you doing as a uh, historian, uh, you know, to make you know these uh, stories you know, re- you know reflect the times, but also uh, to connect with uh, your readers. You know, what's how do you approach you know uh you know topics like this to uh develop into a book like when i'm writing or do you mean like yeah. when the the when the writers of the gospel were writing those oh no, no no you know when you're uh you know doing like a compare contrast with um well Okay, so actually, before I answer that... What's your creative you, process? Okay, what's my creative process? Well, um, in, in, the magic, in, the, in the magic book, did I talk about healing, like my experiences with healing people at all? I can't remember. I think I wrote that book before I, before I was doing any of that. So... Um, so that'll, the reason I ask is because that's going to influence my answer, but that's, that's good. So, um, so I'll, I'll say after I wrote that book, um, really kind of allowed me to, uh, to, to think more open-mindedly about, um, what might, what might be possible. And so I actually took some training on how to do healing, and this was uh, this was church-based healing uh, from from established uh, Christian uh, healing organizations. Um, so, uh, very much using uh, principles that were taken from the ministry of Jesus, and then uh, attempting to apply those uh, to our current reality. And we, it was myself and, and some other friends, and we were able to successfully heal some people. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of things that Jesus did um, that, that seem amazing. And so we, we typically will label that as a miracle. Uh, but in my book, I, I talk about... Um, I, the way I differentiate between a miracle and magic, and ultimately I don't really differentiate, but let's just talk, because we're talking about labels, is it a miracle or not? Um, my, one kind of guideline that I used is, okay, a miracle is something that God does. Only God can do miracles. Um, so if something amazing happens, and you want to know if it was a miracle or not, you have to ask, was God involved? Like, did God do it? Did anybody ask God to do it? 
was God there? Like, so what are the circumstances around that? Um, when we look at the so-called miracles of Jesus, we one thing we do not see is Jesus praying uh, to ask God to do a thing. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Jesus never prayed, and I'm not saying Jesus never asked the Father to do to do things. Uh, but these are not the instances that we uh, generally associate with miracles happening. Uh, if Jesus wants to walk on the water, Jesus apparently just goes and walks on the water. If Jesus is at a wedding and they run out of wine, we don't see Jesus running to the closet and praying. We just see Jesus telling people to bring him the jug. Um, so is that a miracle? I'm going to say by that definition, no. It's not a miracle uh, because I don't see Jesus asking God to do anything. I see exactly what I saw Moses doing, uh, where both Moses and Jesus had a task to do. They went out and did it. And the reason they could do that was because, um, it, and this is completely just within the Christian framework now, and so I'm kind of putting my mind back into that box a little bit, um, but both Moses and Jesus had been given the authority by God to do uh, this thing, what, to basically, basically to do whatever they want. Um, now, they could abuse that authority, as we saw with the, with the water from the stone, um, but they had the power to do it, and they had authority to go out and make choices to, to use that power, how, essentially how they saw fit. Um, so when, um, when we read these, these miracle, miraculous things that Jesus is doing, um, and he's not asking God to, to come and do it, that, um, that dress, that changed the way I was going about our healing ministries. And because when, when we started, we were kind of, uh, oh, you, okay, you've got, um, You've got a sore ankle. Okay, well, we would pray, is basically. So we would lay our hands on and pray. Um, and, you know, that was, it was okay. Um, and then, but after a while, we kind of came to this realization that maybe we don't actually need to, uh, to involve God directly because he's already get, given us the authority and the power to do this. And so then we tried experimenting with, um, instead of instead of it being more of a prayer thing, it was a okay. I'm just going to put my hand on you, and the healing is going to happen, and it did. So we we tried it both ways, asking God to do it, and just doing it, and they both worked. So what does that tell you? Well, I don't really know, but it makes you wonder, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I guess when I to, to get to answer your actual question here, I'm sort of thinking through the processes of, of how I'm going to write these books. It kind of starts with a question for me most of the time. Um, so for the magic in the Bible, the question was like, what gives? Something's not adding up here uh, because I'm noticing this discrepancy uh, between 
the way miracles work in the Bible and the way that we, that I was being taught uh, that, that, that things ought to work in the, in the universe where, where God's in control and you have to ask God for everything. Um, so that's sort of one thing. And basically that's sort of my approach is that I, I see things that don't make sense. And so then I start asking more questions around that. And, and I think you could say the same thing for all of my books uh, in that that's basically my process. I kind of talked already about, um, you know, reading Zechariah Sitchin and seeing things that don't make sense. And, okay, well, I'm going to source check you here, um, but I can't find the sources. And then the deeper and deeper I got, it's like, well, that's not what it says at all. Like, you know, Sitchin talks about um, the uh, the planet Nibiru, which, mm-hmm. and he has all these theories about it, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to know about the planet and how it's supposed to have this widely elliptical orbit and yada, 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 and there's people living on it and all this stuff. No, that I don't buy any of that stuff. The reason I don't believe that is because that's not what the Sumerian texts that I've read say about Nibiru. Uh, and if you want to know my, more about my opinion on what Nibiru is, read my book, The Enuma Elish, because I go into it in great detail, um, which I, I won't, won't cover right now because I think we only have 15 minutes left. Um, but yeah, um, so that's basically how, how those two books started because uh, I started out with The Enuma Elish and then the Atrahasis kind of just followed up um, sort of logically uh, because it's essentially a continuation of the same narrative. Um, my book on UFOs in the Bible started out in a very same kind of same way where, um, it's probably from, uh, from something that, um, uh, that I heard on like ancient aliens because, you know, you have, um, uh, not Sitchin, but, um, uh, Von Daniken, right? Mm-hmm. And von Daniken mentions um, the Bible a couple of times in in his work. Um, he the funny thing about that is that he uh, it, this is one of my favorite quotes from von Daniken, and I I should actually sit down and and uh, memorize it so I get it correctly. But I'll paraphrase it right now. He says something like, "Yeah, so in the Bible it says this, and um, it's somewhere." Uh, yeah, I could probably look it up, but I don't feel like it. <laughs> and I'm like, geez, man, like if, you, if you're going to try to tell people what it's, what you're talking about, like give us again, like this is like this whole Sitchin thing where it's like, give us the references, quote your sources, tell us what your sources are. It's, it's all well and fine to, to say, oh, it's in the Bible somewhere. Or like Sitchin says, well, it's, it's in the Sumerian text somewhere. Um, it's like no, that that's not going to fly. So when I when I heard Van Daniken say this stuff, um, I'm like, well, okay, is that really what it said? And so I I managed to track down, even though he didn't give us the reference, I was able to find it. Um, it wasn't that hard. I mean, I I'm I'm very good with the Bible. I know 
uh, I know how to find pretty much anything. Um, so, uh, so basically, I read the the thing that he was claiming, and I was like, hmm, uh, I can't disprove that right now. Like he's he might be onto something here. So I had to dig into it, and the more I dug, uh, the deeper I found that oh, not only that, but there's also this, and then. Again, because I had this extensive uh, experience and knowledge of, of the general contents of the Bible, thing, I would remember other stories or other sections, and, um, and I would go double-check on those. And then, uh, sure enough, that, so, it's, so it's like, okay, the thing that Von Daniken said was a UFO actually does sound like one. And that reminds me of this other story. So I read that story. Gee, that sounds like a UFO too. And that reminds me of this other story. Oh, that sounds like a UFO too. And so there's, as you know, because I, I uh, you know, you've read the book in the UFOs in the Bible. I think there was um, 40, uh, maybe even more um, separate sightings that uh, once I dug into them, um, yeah, those definitely sound like UFOs. Like, I, I, don't, it, I, I don't know how you explain that them other than they were uh, UFOs. Yeah, how else, how else can you explain it? I mean, you know, usually there are other explanations, and it usually goes like something like, oh, well, it was God, or it was... Um, Maybe that was an angel. But the problem with some of these things is, for one thing, there's no such thing as an angel in Hebrew. That There's no concept in the Hebrew language that matches up with the concept of, Eng- of uh, angel in, in our current English usage. The word angel actually comes from the Greek language. So when... When the uh, when the Bible translators were per, were translating from the Hebrew into the Greek uh, to create what we now know as the Septuagint, um, they threw the they didn't know really what to do with this concept, so they just kind of took a word out of Greek mythology and they applied it into this. And so when we read about angels in the Bible we're actually reading about a Greek, a mythological Greek creature. Um, and it, it doesn't jive with the, the concepts that are actually in the Hebrew text at all. Um, in, the, in the New Testament, it's a little bit of a different story because those texts were written after the concept of the angel had come, uh, had come into, the, into the language. Uh, because it came from the Greek. So the New Testament writers were either writing in Greek um, and had direct access to that concept, or they were writing in uh, possibly in Aramaic or one of these other languages. But at that point, they were already steeped in the Greek culture, so they they would have had these concepts available to them that were not anywhere in the mindset or the lexicography of the ancient Hebrew writers. Okay, so, and you know, with the 
Yeah, I just ha- uh, take one question from your before Roswell. You know, uh, you and Barbara cover um, you know the Magi. Uh, do you think they were following a UFO to the manger? Yeah, well, we had to bring it back to Christmas somehow here. So, um, actually, I do think that. Um, and the reason I think that is because of the the way that the supposed star moved in the sky. So, um, there, there's a whole bunch of interesting things that you could really get into uh, in terms of um, digging into who the Magi were, where they came from, what it was that they had uh, that when they were bringing gifts, and even how many of them were there, because the the the, the traditional story of there there being three of them, um, I don't actually think that 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 number is found in the Bible. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure about that. Um, so there's all these other other legends that are playing into the story that, you know, we assume that this story is from the Bible the way we read it. But really only only a few parts of that are from the Bible. And uh, then there's a lot of parts that are from um, from other uh, traditional uh, tellings of the story. Um, but if you look at the motion of the star you see that it um, presumably, again, we don't know for sure, but it sounds like these guys have followed the star from from the east. Okay, so what does that mean? So it it's, seems like it's from somewhere far away. Um, I mean, it could, it could literally be the next town over, uh, but it doesn't really seem to jive with the narrative. These guys seem to be foreigners, and they seem to have traveled a long ways and have been following the star for quite some time. Who knows how long? Could have been weeks. Could have been months. If you look at, they were, were, were they traveling on foot? I don't know. In some versions of the story that you see them on camels or whatever. Um, but... Uh, regardless, a camel doesn't walk very much faster than a man walks. So if they were coming from, I don't know, let's say Afghanistan or even China, um, then they were probably walking for at least a month. So if you have a star that is in the sky for a month, um, is it actually going to be traveling across the sky westward leading you west if you're coming from the east i just thought of that right now so i don't have an answer to that but uh, i know that there's some astronomers listening to the show and they can tell us that if that's even the correct direction or if that's complete bs because it would actually lead you eastward uh, i don't know the answer to and then that. it stop stops suddenly yeah, so then it stops suddenly. Okay. And then it starts again. So this is the really weird part is that like okay, so it stops suddenly and then they have they have to go in uh in to ask um you know, where is this king of the Jews? 
and then they they keep following it and then it stops and here's where it gets really insane is that it stops over a house okay well so there's a specific house that the star somehow leads them to that's what that's what the way that they phrase it um it doesn't exactly say that the star stopped over the house um, but it implies that strongly. Um, and so if they were just following a star and the star was moving across the sky and the Earth is orbiting, then you're either never going to stop following the thing, depending on the, the relative speeds you're traveling, um, or at some point it's going to disappear. Uh, but what it's not going to do is disappear and then show up again and then go a little bit farther and then stop somewhere like stars don't do that. Um, but you know, what can do that flying objects like in the atmosphere, uh, like especially in the low atmosphere where they could literally stop over a house and possibly even, uh, spotlight house with like a, like a, an actual spotlight which would explain why the shepherds in the fields, um, first of all, noticed that something weird was happening uh, and the way that they described it, where, you know, lo, the angel of the Lord shone, uh, what is it, shone brightly around them, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that's not a star, guys. So, you know, we had this, same kind of thing with uh, Moses and the pillar of fire at night. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, and that one, so that Moses followed that pillar of fire for 40 years. That's nothing. Com- I mean, like the, these three magi or whoever, however many magi there were, they got nothing on Moses, man. Moses is dedicated. He's like, yes. Hey, look at that UFO. I'm going to follow it for the rest of my life. Well, eventually it disappeared, uh, but 40 years is a pretty long run. Okay, and, and uh, Ken, we're down to like a minute. Uh, do, do you want to plug your uh, translation thing and uh, you know where to uh, get your books, et yeah, cetera? Sure. And, uh, Are you going to cut me off if I go over a minute? I'll try and keep it. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, so you know, Barbara controls the switches. Barbara so. will cut us off. So I'll make it quick. So uh, my website is dimensionfold.com. Um, my new project, which is this new, uh, brand new uh, um, Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, uh, is at Bara Foundation. That's B A R A dot foundation. And it is the world's first alien friendly Bible translated uh, directly from the Hebrew with no middleman. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, Hey, I just want to wish everyone a uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, Thanks, Ken, for being our guest tonight. And uh, we'll see you on Monday with uh, Gary Wayne. Good night, everyone.